In episode 63 of MobiCast, John and Chris discuss service-to-service authentication for microservice APIs. Welcome to MobiCast, a weekly conversation about cloud-native development, AWS, and building distributed systems. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Chris. It's another episode of MobiCast. Hey, John. Good to be back. Yeah, great to have you. We're missing Rich today because we're doing this on a Friday instead of a Thursday, and Rich is, Rich is busy today, so we'll miss him. We today, are, we're going to talk about something that I'm pretty excited about because it, it's not something I know a lot about, and it, it is just... It's one of the things that I think makes working in microservices difficult. And it's, I think, the kind of thing that gets a lot of Google searches because people are like, oh, what do I do about this? So so the thing is authentication for microservices. It's just a have to do this, have to check this box. How do I deal with it? What's what's a way for me to not write any code and check this box? I think is a, a way a lot of people approach it, especially at the beginning of a project. So we're going to get into really, you know, what are the ways of doing it and what are, the, what are some good practices? And I... I hope to learn a lot through this. So, and because it's such a big topic, I'm, and I'm hoping to get this in in one episode, uh, we're not going to find out what you've been up to this week. So, it's going to be a mystery. Let's just get started, Chris. Tell us what. Tell us what we're going to talk about. Cool. Yeah, and um, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can stick to that one episode um, yeah. goal. I, I kind of suspect this is going to be a two-parter, just because there's there's a lot here, and and I'm kind of hoping it is. I mean, I think it, even though authentication kind of feels like security and kind of feels like a yawner. I, I think it, it's actually going to be pretty interesting. Um, yeah, this is so. different than security to me. This is this is the kind of, people that, people aren't like, how do I secure my microservice? They're like, crap, I know I have to do this, so let me Google how to do this. And like everybody's trying to figure this out. So I think it's different. Yeah, I mean, and I kind of think this is more like just API design too, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, and just, as you know, you asked for like a reason that set this up. So really, I mean, this is we we build microservices. We we do APIs, whether they be RESTful or GraphQL or you know RPC based or, or whatever it may be. But you know, you're going to have endpoints that. Maybe you do have some that are that are anyone can hit, right? You don't need any kind of identity to them, so they're not authenticated. But by and large, you're you're probably building APIs that should be authenticated, right? Like even if for no other reason you want to just do things like just being able to do rate limiting, right, and quotas, and just keeping track of like who's calling what. So you know, chances are most of your APIs are going to require some sort of authentication. You need some identity associated with that. So it's it's fundamental, right, to your to the APIs that you're designing. And you know, nor- normally when we think about identification identity, you have a user context, right? So it's you know, the, the typical client server client server type application. So you got some you know some front end JavaScript client, web client, maybe built it in in you know React or or Angular or you know some other some other JavaScript framework. It's doing things and it's now making API calls to some backend microservice. And so as it does that, it's doing it through the context of a user. And so it's, you know, John Smith and they've signed in somehow and provided identity and, and it's very clean and crisp and clear and easy to understand. So that's even if there's dependencies there, like one microservice call, calling another one, calling another one, calling another one, they can preserve that user context from call to call to call as long as they're all synchronous, right? Oh man, you're you're <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's a big that's actually a, another big can of worms that'll be kind of interesting maybe we can circle back on that okay like, do you actually pass along the context 
of who called you as you have a chain of microservice calls, right? And so you can do that. Um, and there's pros and cons to it versus do you do you not bubble that context down? And instead, is it now becoming a service to service call? So maybe we, you know, if we have time, we can circle back to it and talk about it. It, it. That's one of those implementation things that gets really hairy quick. And it gets actually really complicated. So I'm kind of glad you brought that up, but maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll circle back on that one. So yeah, so you know, so you have this. So broadly, there's there's two types of authentication that we have with our microservice, our services, and our APIs, right? So we talked about we just talked about user authentication, and so that's when you actually have the the identity of of it's an actual end user, right? So. And there, you know, the identity mechanism is coming from some well-known system, right? And there's lots of plumbing out there for doing it. So you can use something like an identity as a service provider. So, you know, things like Auth0, Okta, OneLogin, even like AWS Cognito, right? These are all just existing off-the-shelf systems, frameworks that you can use to implement your user profile, your user identity store, you know, type thing. You can use things like OAuth or SAML, security assertion markup language systems to to do identity and things like single sign-on. And just at the end of the day, you have these end users, they're registered with your system somehow, um, they have accounts and you know they, they're, they're providing credentials. It's a user ID, password in exchange for that. Like we now have a well-known identity and that context is what gets passed to our microservices. So that's user authentication and that's the common path and that's the well-known path. And we're not going to spend much more time talking about that because it's just, that's a pretty well-known, easy to solve problem. What we really want to focus on in this, in this episode is what happens when the callers are not actual users, but they're other microservices. So we're, let's call this service-to-service authentication. And so this brings up an interesting problem. Like, how do we give these callers identity? So, it, and, it's, and it's definitely a, you know, this is a common thing. Well, once you start building out like services and have more than a, and definitely have more than a handful, you run into this issue where you're going to have, as you do your refactoring and your, and your architecture and design, you're going to have like core services that provide services to other microservices, right? So it's the, the now the service becomes the client of this other service. And you can kind of think of it maybe as like a hub and spoke architecture, or again, just as a natural progression of, of your design, as you have more and more services, this is going to be more and more of a common occurrence where you're going to have other services will need common functionality. And then they go and make these AP, they need to make API calls to these other services. And so how do we handle identity there? And that's what we want to focus on in this episode. Cool. Can you give us like a, just off the top of your head, an example of, you know, a, a service that we can understand that would need to call another service, like just some real world example? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a, a real one would be configuration state. So think of, imagine like you wanted to have a, um, a way of handling configuration in a, in a real time way across all your, across your applications, right? So it could be silly, like just whatever it may be like setting. So you could have like some app, like a real, for us, like a real example is we have an application that allows export of data in CSV format. And for whatever, for, for various reasons, we need to be able to limit how the scope of those those exports, right? To limit the amount of data that's being done. So we have some configuration setting and say, hey, this is, let's limit it to 3000 rows of data. And so that's a configuration setting. And typically you would do something like, oh, just add it as a config file into your 
into your service. Maybe it's an environment. Maybe you could do it as an environment variable. There's lots of techniques. It could even, I mean, you might want to do it as maybe database or, or something, but usually, like it. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's that too, right? <laughs> so, but I mean, the, the point being is like, for the most part, like that config, like that's going to be something where if you want to change it and say like, oh, instead of being 3000, we find out it's really a, you know, we want to bump it up now to 5000, you know, that may be a code change and a redeploy to, to change that. And so it'd be really nice to have kind of more of like a um, an admin UI where you could kind of change some some administrator could go in and just change that, and when that setting is changed, push the changes out to anyone that is interested in that. Right. So this way, in real time, it can get the config update, and now that's now that's now live. Right. So you might have this this microservice that's responsible for hosting that distributed configuration if for allowing other folks to register with it and say, give me my configuration, and then also to register for callbacks when changes happen, right? So that would be one of these just kind of core, that configuration, that, that distributed network configuration service would be a, a, one of these these hub microservices that other microservices are going to be callers of. And okay. again, we want to we want to lock that down, have authenticated APIs, know who's calling it. And so that would be a, a one such example. Okay, cool. You know, and, and this is the crux of the problem is like, so how do we give, you know, these callers identity, these when it's another microservice that's calling? And this is where it's like wild, wild west. I mean, there is just like this is this problem has kind of been around for a while, especially once we kind of switched from monoliths to, you know, the microservice buzzword and, and which is basically just kind of like just making our services refactored just as we would good code. And I think so I'd like to characterize this problem too with with sort of an attitude from about 10 years ago of like, oh, it's all in our own data center. It's all, you know, kind of safe. So service ser- services can call each other and maybe we'll throw in an API key. And that'll just mm-hmm. make it safe. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like how, it, how I think things got dealt with for a long time. Yeah, and I actually think that's how they still get dealt with too in the majority of the cases, right? So... And that's a great point. I mean, that's definitely one of the, of the the various possible ways that you could go about doing this. That's definitely one of them, right? And it's and it's probably one of the more, the more the more common situations is just like we're not going to do authentication for service to service calls. So we'll, maybe we'll do or we'll lock it down from a network perspective, and that we we handle it that way, right? So we we make sure that only. So we're not dealing with identity. We're really just dealing with security in that sense, right? So we don't necessarily know who's calling us, but we know that whoever's calling us, it's the allowed. It's from the allowed space. Um, right. They have the keys right? to the building. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. So, so, and that, so that's absolutely one of the possible things you know that you can do, and 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 what people have been doing. You know, other possibilities are, you know, now with things like the service mesh becoming more popular, and we talked about this in previous episodes, that's providing this functionality, right? So in, in particular, Istio with their, we, we talked about Istio and, and it's it's one of its components, Citadel, that deals with security and identity. It uses X509 certificates to basically give identity to each one of its components in that system. And it's actually using something called Spiffy. And Spiffy is a, a new standard. I mean, it's, it's not, I, don't th- I don't think it's not, it, it's still going through that, that process of being defined, but it's a group of folks that are in this space of like, how do you do 
secure identity for the components of a distributed system. And Spiffy stands for Secure Production Identity Framework for Everyone. And so this is absolutely being built for this exact problem. I want to characterize the problem a little bit more just because it's like, you know, I had just made the joke of like, you have the keys to the building. And I think that is a good analogy because now the building is the cloud and it's multiple regions and it's multiple availability zones per region. And it's, you know, maybe different networks that are peered together. And are you sure that your network engineers tied everything down so nobody can get in? Like, are you really sure? So no, I'm not sure anymore. Like mm-hmm. there's so many firewalls running and so many things that could potentially get left open. I better make sure that everything that I'm running protects itself. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, there, there are the two pieces to this, right? One is the the security aspect of it, making sure that like who's calling me is allowed to, but then you also have the identity part, right? Like who, like, who is this service A or is this service B? Oh, or like all, I, or is it just some anonymous caller that mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure is allowed to call me, right? That has that has the keys to the building, right? Right. Thing. So, so there are those two the the two pieces to it. And as you as you mean, I mean, it's securing your cloud is not an easy job, <laughs> right? Right. So having that approach of just saying like, okay, I've secured my cloud and and just allow requests come, you know, just don't do, don't deal with authentication. Like that's kind of fraught yes. with, with issues, right? So Spiffy is this, this the standard that's being developed by, by a consortium of folks. And it's, you know, comprehensively dealing with this issue and it has various, its own various components, right? It has ways of creating identity namespace and it has ways of doing identity documents, which at the end of the day are either X509 certs or they're signed JWTs. And then it also has a um, an API for talking about how how the components in the system can can issue and retrieve, make these requests right throughout the system. So, I guess the the, the the main point here is that it's not it's not lightweight. It's pretty again it, it's kind of a, um, a pretty complicated, comprehensive system. And if you're a bigger company with lots of lots of folks to work on this stuff, then like this is something you definitely want to go look at because it's going to, it's kind of like what we talked about with the service mesh, right? right? It's, it's. If you're a bigger company and you have lots of folks to work on this, please do so that it can mm-hmm. be easier for the rest of us and then we can yeah. start using it. It's <laughs> yeah. not very Yeah, indeed. So there's that you have, you know, there's other kind of more comprehensive, complicated ways of dealing with this as well. So you can do things like, you know, OAuth too with and have specific service accounts and and do the the do the exchange back and forth and and assign have these accounts and negotiate for the credentials and use that as your identity. But again, quite a bit of work to go implement your own OAuth two implementation, right? And then you have more kind of like vendor specific ways of doing it. And this is kind of uh, along the lines of your your analogy of you have the keys to the to the building. But like if you're in AWS or Azure, you can use things like IAM roles and security groups, right? To to lock down who can call who. Those kinds of approaches do run into some complexities if you have services that can be called by both users and other microservices, right? So there's some like how do you how do you deal with that? Like you have certain API like if you have authenticated APIs that sometimes you are gonna have user contacts and sometimes you're not because it's a microservice. So how are you gonna deal with that at the at the IAM level, security level? 
it gets to be a bit trickier, right? So those are the more comprehensive, complicated ways of doing it. And I, I think, again, for the purpose of this discussion, that's that's all we need to, to say about that. Because I now like for us to focus more on like, well, let's talk about some more kind of like the, the simpler approach, some simpler approaches to this that would be perhaps more suitable and practical for most folks out there. Because um, most of us don't work at Netflix. We're not at Google and we don't have thousands of microservices. It's really more like a handful. Right. Um, and I want to, I also want to say that these approaches that we're about to go over can probably still, you know, get past the security audit by like a call fire if you're building a payments application. It's not that they're not secure. It's just that they're maybe easier to approach from a development perspective. Not, and so again, great point because now that's absolutely true. And not only is it, it's actually like what we're going to, what we'll talk about is forms the basis for some of those other systems. So like, and specifically something like Spiffy, really, at the end of the day, Spiffy, it's either X509 certs or it's signed JWTs. And we're going to talk about signed JWTs. And so it really, it's, it's very, very similar to what Spiffy is, is going in and basically trying to formalize. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're just taking a piece of it. We're not going to go make it adhere to any one particular standard and, and all the very deal with all the various edge cases that they've thought about. Instead, we're just going to keep it at a, at a practical level. But at, at its at its core, from a from a identity, from authentication standpoint, it's the same technique and it's just as valid. Another point of reference, if you will, is like these signed JWTs. I mean, this is actually one of the things that Google recommends for services service authentication for their Google Cloud and Open API, like this exact same technique. So even though that again these are simpler, it doesn't mean that they're any less valid or secure or robust. Cool. So yeah, tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so given that I mean there there are so there's there's you know two simple like the we'll call these the, the simpler, more practical approaches for services service authentication. And let's call them the first one is API is basically just API keys. And then the second one we'll call signed JWTs. And so first one we talk about API keys, because I think this is something that's pretty, pretty common out there. It's pretty well known. Uh, it's it's they're in your email, they're in your GitHub account. Yeah. I mean <laughs> they're everywhere. Yeah. They're I mean the thing, if you're if you're using something like you know, an, an email um, sending service like Mailgun or MailChimp or whatnot, chances are you're registering to make API calls using an API key for them. So they they issue, they give you an API key and that ends up becoming the identity for it. Same thing for like a lot of webhook type systems and whatnot. So in this particular case, you're, you're basically, an API key is just, you know, kind of like this machine generated, I mean, it's really, it's a password is what it is, right? And so that password identifies your identity as well. So it's it's basically the, it's generated, it's a unique value that's generated by whatever issued it. And it know when you, when you ish, when it gets issued, you're basically saying who you are. So by that one unique value, you're getting basically both identity and, you know, the credit that the verification that you are who you who you are by virtue of the fact that you know that that secret that password, mm-hmm. um, and so that's really what an API key is, and really easy to implement, right? Because you're it's basically just a password. So you know the most common way to do this is just throw it into the HTTP request header, you know, into the authentication header and put your put your um, API key in there, you know, at its core, that's not secure, right? Because it's just base64 encoded, but 
you send it over TLS and now it's encrypted. And so it ends up being a pretty, pretty good, decent way of, of handling the identity and, and authentication issue. As long as you're going over TLS, it's secure. And so, you know, it, it works. Um, it's easy. And again, this is pretty common, pretty popular. You'll see it out there. It's it's really easy to roll your own as well. But, you know, there are some some downsides to this. And so, you know, one is like you, you now have to manage a list of these these keys, right? So you you have to decide what's the level of granularity for these keys or do you have like a, and, and this is for you, you know, you the implementer side of your system, do you have like one API key for all your services? Do you do it on a per service basis? Do you issue them to individual callers? And it, it really comes down to, boils down to like what level of granularity, granularity you want for identity and then also like what is your the the blast radius for from a security standpoint if the key gets compromised um, so those are the kind of things you have to figure out it adds complexity for how many keys you have to manage you have to there are it makes it much more difficult to do things like rotation of of credentials the more keys you have and just you know how are you going to do this Given that you're managing, they're probably hard coded into people's code, um, um, and and yeah, and so that and that's another that you know gives like you know to another con with with these API keys is that at the end of the day they are something that like developers need to know, so you need to pass them around like, hey, what's the API key for hitting this service on staging, and you know, so now how are you gonna how are you gonna share that? You know, is it do you do it as Slack? Is it a DM? Is it chat? Is it email? Do you use, you know, you should use something like LastPass, some secure password credential sharing service. Um, but, and you know, who knows? Maybe someone in test code accidentally commits it to GitHub, right? And then now, now you're out. Now, now it's time to do rotation, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so that so th- those are some of the, the definitely the cons that with with API keys and um, one of the reasons why in general we don't use that method. So simple, you can make it work. Just know that there are a, a laundry list of, of disadvantages or, or gotchas with it that you'll have to deal with. Hey there, this is Rich. Please pardon this quick interruption. We recently passed an internal milestone of thirty thousand listens, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the support. I was also hoping to encourage you to head on over to iTunes to leave us a review. Positive feedback and constructive criticism are both incredibly important to us. So give us an idea of how we're doing, and we'll promise to keep publishing new episodes every week. Okay, let's dive back in. So the the second approach I want to talk about is the signed JWTs. And this is something that that we have done here at Kelsis um, with this pattern, and it's worked really, really well for us. And it's also been the most similar to kind of keeping parity with the other form of of authentication, the user authentication. So, you know, at the end of the day, the user authentication ends up looking like a JWT and with things like, you know, just identity stuff, like, you know, what's their, the, the account name, maybe it has information about the user, like first name, last name, email address, that kind of stuff. We can kind of do the same thing with, with a JWT for our service service authentication so we can give things like what's this what's the name of the calling service and information about it and perhaps even things like 
what roles it has and levels of access or, or, or whatnot. So some additional information about the context of the call. So having a, a JWT gives us that flexibility and we can actually go build like a separate microservice for handling some of those things for issuing these JWTs and be responsible for doing things like, okay, what are the roles and what is the level of access and not just authentication, but get into things like authorization. So pretty flexible, but also you can keep it really simple as well. And so I think maybe some people listening might not know what a JWT is. It's JSON Web Token. Can you mm-hmm. tell us what that even is? Yeah, so so it, it stands for JSON Web Token. And really, all it is, is it's, it's a JSON document that has a, it's basically composed of three components. So it has a header, which kind of indicates one, that's a JWT. So it specifically says that this is what I am. I'm a JWT. And then it also says, how I am, what's the cryptic, cryptographic algorithm for, for signing this. So that's in the header. The payload for it is basically where the claims go, and claims is basically the identity information. So, And there's some very well-known claims. They're, most of them are three-letter abbreviations, so, but at the end of the day, they, they indicate who, who they are, who they're, who, maybe who they're trying to talk to, and then you can also, so you can have like the standard claims in there, the, the standard properties of the claims in there, or you, you can extend it and add your own unique things that you want to put in there. But that's really like three letter claims. I, I'm just, I don't even, I can't even imagine what that would be. Like, can you think of any off the top of your head? Yeah. I mean, so like some of the common ones are EXP, right? Which stands for expiration. Um, so it says, this is how long this JWT has is, is TTL. Another one is um, odd AUD stands for audience. And that is like, who, what's the name of the thing that I want to talk to? Uh, Sub, S-U-B. I think that's probably like short for subscriber. And and that really is the, like, we use that for the name of the service that's calling, making the call, right? So it's the the client, if you will. And it's Um, the service that's making the call that initially constructs this JWT, right? It's like going to put one together and send it to the service that it's calling. And the service that it's calling is going to basically evaluate it and make sure that it looks right. Yeah. I mean, in in the kind of like the simplest way of doing it, if it's just, um, you know, two services talking to each other, you know, the it's the initiating service, the calling service that needs to kind of put together its identity document and that's that JWT. So that JWT gets created um, and that gets sent with its request. And then on the the receiving side, it can then look at that JWT and decide whether or not like this is valid and to allow it. So those are the, um, so we talked about the header part, we talked about the payload part with the claims, and then the last part of it is the signature, right? And so this is the the calculation that says based upon like the way the, the the cryptographic method I used for signing this using a secret here is the signature so that basically I can th- this is where the where the authentication part comes in right to verify the identity the, and the integrity of the claims within it by having that signature portion of the JWT to be able to, to basically run the same algorithm on both sides, both the the initiator and the receiver run the same algorithm using the same secret pass, you know, basically password. And if they come up with the same result and that, and that signature matches, then they know that, Hey, this is, we're allowed to talk to each other. Right. I, I know that whoever sent me this 
is who they are by virtue no, of the fact wrong. that <laughs> you know whoever sent this has the password. It could yeah. be that somebody else has it too, but sure, sure, you don't sure. Know yeah. that they are who they are. And who they no, are yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. So <laughs> it's it's they 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 have yes they have the password, and so which is is as good as we can do um, in this, and that's kind of like as good as we can do in the world, anywhere, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So absolutely cool. So actually, I, I hadn't really gone all the way. You know, I haven't had to personally hadn't haven't implemented JWT before, so that was. A nice little lesson for me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, and we've kind of covered the the bulk here of like just what that what this this approach is, right? So it's it's so it's really the. So from a from a caller standpoint, when they want to make a call to another microservice that's expecting authentication, it's their responsibility to construct one of these JWT, these identity documents. So the 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 really key part of that is that they need to be able to sign it, cryptographically sign it. And they're gonna so they have to use this this shared secret. So it's it's gotta be a secret that's known by both the recipient as well as the caller. Again, this is the password, right? And this is something that you need to protect and make sure that you know the the scope is limited to who can use that. And and this is where you can use leverage just the various ways that you can protect things, you know, throughout the system. So you can use like a, a secrets manager, like something like Vault from from HashiCorp or or Secrets Manager from AWS. You can use things like S3 um, buckets and policies and kind of lock that down. And, and, you know, you might say like this service is only allowed to be called by these three other services. So only allow those three other services to access that S3 key. And as you're, as you're explaining this, and as I'm learning this, I'm having these aha moments about what, what JWT provides that is so cool. If you were just to have, say, like a username or like a ID, then it would be the responsibility of the caller to kind of keep a record of who's who. So, oh, ID 1456 is, oh, that's the, you know, the configuration client that we had set up before. And it's stored in this database that I keep because I'm the service and I have to know who everyone is. Whereas with JWT, it seems like you can get new callers without having to kind of maintain who they are. They can just, as long as they meet your specification, like, so you set, you have to say, well, you got to tell me your name. You got to tell me, maybe you can even have it tell, tell you other things like where you are. Like I'm in AWS region, you know, ES, US East one, and this is, you know, A, my availability zone. You could do all kinds of cool things, additional, additional information you could put in that JWT. And then all that information could be loggable, but it doesn't have to be, and, and if it's not there, you could say, well, you gave me the right key. Everything was signed great, but you didn't include, you didn't include the information I wanted in the J- JWT. So you're denied. Sorry. Like pretty mm-hmm. cool. Pretty cool. You can do yeah. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so very, very flexible, right? Like that, that's, that was kind of like definitely the, point. the points of the, of <laughs> yeah. the cons with API keys is that you have to maintain that list of keys and, mm-hmm. and those list of keys are both the identity and the authentication. So that means you have probably some database table that's keeping track of this particular API key. This is the description of who that user is or that caller is, right? And some right. information about it, you have to, maybe that's where you, your TTL, you have to have TTLs on it. I mean, just all the information that goes along with that versus with the JWT approach, you're basically saying we're not, that information is the responsibility of the caller and they can actually put whatever they want inside there, right? They can say whoever it is they want to be. So it's up to you when you're, you know, when you're designing this and coding this, like just you need to have some conventions and you, you need to have a, um, a reasonable way of, of doing that. 
But this particular approach is just not, it's not saying one way or the other, right? It's really what it's, it's guaranteeing is that through that shared secret, it's basically verifying that both parties have that same shared secret. They have access to right. that shared secret and therefore they're allowed to talk to each other and therefore it's authenticated and it's passing the identity information in that JWT and that identity information came from the caller mm-hmm. and it's completely flexible and extensible. And like you said, like the, the receiver can be like, well, I'm, I'm now expecting, I need this other thing, right? Um, maybe now I'm actually, I'm implementing um, RBAC um, roles-based access controls. And so I need a, a list of roles that come through on that as well. And again, you can have something like a another microservice that's responsible for generating your JWTs, right? And, and determining not only authentication, but also authorization. So lots of of flexibility there with this kind of approach. And the great thing about it is that you don't have to do any re-architecture or design, right? Like you can extend all this with really no changes to the rest of your system. So if you want to have some 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 standalone microservice that's responsible for doing your JWT generation, and it's the one that is knowing about secrets and keeping track of who can call who, like that can all be done without really changing the 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 recipients. Right. The, the the services that are being called, they don't care. They're still just getting the JWT. They don't care whether it actually was created by the by the caller or the caller used someone else to generate it. And and if it's if the JWT doesn't validate and it doesn't it's not signed right or it doesn't have the contents that you're expecting, then you can send if you're using HTTP, you can send back a which I guess you would be with JWT, send back a 401. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So 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 and and so that's what these, you know, these these recipients, the the services are are doing. Like they're they're getting that JWT again. It's coming across in an HTTP request header. So use the authentication header to pack that JWT into it as, as essentially, you know, the password information, if you will. Um, and again, we, this is going to be going over TLS, so it's encrypted. It's going to extract that JWT from the header. It's now going to do a decode operation on that using its shared secret um, and compare it to the signature that's in the JWT. And if they all match, then it says, okay, this thing's valid and that's authentication identity. It could now do another. And so if that doesn't work, right, if, if it's not valid, if the, if the signature is incorrect, if the decoding fails, then it can have just reject it as a, as a 401 um, unauthorized. If it does succeed, then it, the, if the service wants to, it can now go further and say, okay, I know who this identity is. Do I want to do further checks to now do, um, to perform more, um, to do authorization checks, if you will, right? Like I can now put in rules, like maybe I'm only going to accept requests from these two services. So if identity is not that, then I can reject it there. But that's, you know, again, extensibility of the system and, and however you want to do it. Right. It's not in our outline, and so this is maybe putting you on the spot a little bit, but if somebody's listening they want to implement this and they want to just sort of, you know, get a bit of a head start, do you have anything that you would recommend that they look up or look for in order to not, you know, reinvent the wheel when it comes to implementing JWT as yeah, a I mean, microservice it, I mean, definitely use a, use a, use a JSON library, I mean, J, a JWT library for handling this and for handling the, the encode and decode stuff. There's just tons of, of libraries out there. So don't go and, and, and try to re-implement the wheel. It literally is for almost whatever language that you're on, whether it's it's Ruby or Java or Node or .NET. I mean, it really should be to do this 
creation of a JWT or to do the decoding of it shouldn't be much more than 10 lines of code using one of these libraries. And go to um, jwt.io, that website. That is you know, a great website with lots of information. It's, it's, I believe it's hosted by Auth0, and they may be one of the, the original backers of the JWT spec. And they have lots of, there's, they have their own libraries that are out there that are open source and available, but every platform out there has libraries for dealing with JWTs and for assigning them, for encoding and decoding them. So definitely use that. Really, it just boils down to how you're going to, what is your mechanism for distributing the shared secret and, and making it so both the caller and the receiver know about it. That's going to be your, you know, you're going to roll your own on that. Just whatever you do, make sure you've thought about that and you limit the scope of who has access to those, those, to those shared secrets. And also kind of basically make it such that like developers don't need to know that. Make, make all access to that via, just make it programmatic through code. And so it does make it makes it a little bit more challenging for developers. Like they can't just do a an ad hoc curl statement. They ha- they'll have to probably run a script to go generate a valid JWT. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so worth it because it's like just let the code go and make the secure fetch to to get this the shared secret to go make a JWT as opposed to passing around the shared secret so that anyone can then go and and do it. So. So yeah, leverage leverage the library codes that are out there for for dealing with JWTs and signing and, and for encoding and decoding, and then really think hard about how you're going to protect your shared secrets. Yes, for sure. And so I think I think that that kind of covers what we wanted to talk about in terms of uh, microservice authentication. But we had and so if you're done listening, thank you. But there was that one part that I'd like to spend just a few more minutes on for those people that have time about well, if you have a chain of service calls and you are you know, you've got a user context in the first one, and then services are calling each other after that in a chain of dependencies. Wouldn't you just kind of pass that credential along from service to service? And I think that I kind of understand now what the answer might be is that instead of doing that, we could maintain that context as part of our JWT information from one service to another instead of instead of like using the actual original JWT that had the, the user's context in the first one. Before you answer, I guess. I want to preface this with saying if there's a deep down dependent service that gets that that's been called by you know several other services before it but it was all initiated by a user I would assume that in our architecture and in our information you know gathering systems we would care about who that original user was like to lose that information would seem to be a bummer like some database gets updated and we sure hope that we know that it was Charlie that really wanted that database update to happen, even if it was like, you know, microservice XYZ that ultimately made the call to update the, the database. Right, Chris? Like we do want to know all like that user information, right? All even deep down in, in a list of services that have dependencies. We want to we want to remember that because that's important. Yeah, I mean, again, this gets into kind of just implementation considerations and just where it has to deal with your architecture design and just the various microservices and how cohesive they are with like the user model, right? So like, 
I think like a good example of this would be, like, and this is like a real world example that I ran into in the past. So imagine you have a, um, a photo sharing application. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, and let's just say that the way that you, this gets designed because you, so photos end up at the end of the day are a certain type of image, right? And images are at the end of the day, it's just a binary file, like let's just call it a blob, right? And so you can think about as you're thinking about in that system, maybe it makes sense to like, this is actually three different services. Maybe I have like a, um, I have my front end, my application service that does all my application specific logic around photo sharing, right? And all the things that it can do there. Maybe I have a separate microservice that all it knows about is just images and maybe all the functionality it has like things like image filters, it can do things like resizing, it can do effects, it can do things like flip and crop and stuff like that, right? So just anything around images. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I have a third service that all it's responsible for is blobs. And its responsibility is making sure that I have, you know, just the ability to do crud on blobs in a very scalable way. And so the the images image service will use the blob service and the photo sharing service will use the image service, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of like the chain. And so you definitely have user authentication coming in on the front end to your photo sharing service. Mm-hmm. Now it gets tricky. Like, do you still pass that same user context down into your image service? Like, did you design the image service so that it had the exact same user base? Mm-hmm. And does it, is it really? Does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and it gets even more tricky like going down to the blob service, right? Like, did you really, was that really designed with that in mind? And it shares the same user database as your photo sharing service. And so at some point, there's a breakage, right? Where it just it just doesn't keep extending, right? You, yeah, sure. There needs to be the separation. Yeah. And so that's where it comes. So so you have to decide at what level of my system am I doing that? I What's responsible for doing the authentication and the authorization? And right. so, you know, you may decide that that's all done at the front end at the photo sharing service and all the identity, all, all the authentication, all the authorization questions are, are handled there. And then at that point, now the um, authentication is done at the service to service level between it and the image service and also between the image service and the blob service. So it's all, it's, they're just saying like, we don't really care about users. Like we don't care about that, that user's context anymore, that data, because we don't even know about that database. Yeah. So it seems to me like, like sort of the, the way to break it down or the rule of thumb is that if you're, Microservice is acting on stuff that might change the state of, of a particular user that's using your app, then you would want to have that context. But if your microservice is doing kind of what you, you might call generic work, then who cares? Let it do generic work. Mm-hmm. As long as it knows who, what other services are asking for that generic work, then you're good to go. Yeah. Now, it, it, at the end of the day, it just really boils down to like architecture design, but it, it's one of those things where it, it seems like you know, like the natural inc- inclination is like, yeah, just pass the, the the user context down, and it's really easy, right? Like you just, mm-hmm. you just yeah, that's what the, I mean. the, the blob the blob service knows that is John Smith that made the call, but it's like when she, when you get to implementation, it's like, wait a minute, um, <laughs> does blob service? How does it know who John Smith is, right? So now that. It, it gets it gets pretty complicated pretty pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. I think that's a that's a good sort of way to round it out. I think so. I think we we, we actually got through a lot a lot more than I thought we did. Um, although I have no idea how much time we've we've spent, but um, <laughs> uh, it's gone by it's gone by quickly for me. Hopefully, for people you. are sitting waiting to try to get into the you know go in for dinner <laughs> at this point. Yeah. It's like sitting in the driveway listening. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> 
If only. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Thanks a lot, Chris. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, John. See ya. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash six three. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you. And we'll see you again next week.